This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. Yeah, well, people are, you know, I think people are really woken up. I mean, we, we, I've, we've been on this journey probably since, you know, the early 2000s. And I feel in the last year, two years, that uh, a lot of brewing and distilling uh, companies, they've really woken up to sustainability. They don't quite yet know, even some of the big companies, uh, of their strategic direction. So they want to know, in very simple terms, what the what you know what the carbon footprint is what they can do about it and what are the implications if they don't do it uh, and what are the opportunities if they do this week on the show practical sustainability we take a look at the carbon footprint of barley and hear about how a molster's procurement contracts have drastically reduced that carbon footprint at no cost to farmers we'll also hear about some case studies from the malt house if you don't know how to begin your brewery sustainability journey Listening to this episode is a pretty good place to start. Hi, I'm Nigel Davis. I'm the Director of Technicals and Sustainability at uh, Muntins in the UK. Okay, Nigel, let's get some terminology out of the way. First, let's hear about what sustainability means to you and your organization. Yes, I think sustainability should be something which is uh, forward-looking. It's uh, it, it's really uh, in comparison to the uh, sort of CSR activities, the uh, corporate social responsibility. It can be part of that, but I think it's uh, it's much more dynamic to me. So, looking forward in the business, changing the business practices, looking across the entire supply chain, uh, and it's really something that's owned by operations, marketing, and technical. Your paper, I believe, calls out what I think is probably sustainability's biggest barrier to entry. The trick is for a given business to understand the real impact that failure to act will have. Talk about that as well as how a brewery or any business can achieve my favorite term from your paper, practical sustainability. Yeah, practical sustainability is something that stuck with me. Uh, I was asked by a journalist some years back to define what I thought was sustainability. And I said, 
you know what, it has to be practical. And what I mean by that is I want to look for real things, not just concepts. Uh, and that's something I think helps businesses move forward because you can attach it to projects and you can dissociate it from that uh, quite often difficult debate to engage people in climate change. This is very much not about climate change. It's about doing the right thing for the business and for the environment, which indirectly means that you are looking after the planet. So it's a different different approach, but it's far more dynamic, I think, to to engage with the business rather than some potentially political sort of view that people might have about climate change. Right. Being efficient with resources is just common sense and something every business should do. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think... Uh, um, Sustainability is probably it's a buzzword, isn't it now? But uh, most businesses will have done that for many, many years. They'll have looked at energy efficiency, uh, water minimization, you know, water use minimization, that sort of thing. Uh, sustainability, I think, just takes it that little bit further because it's uh, it's got a number of aspects. That's why I like the triple bottom line. It's the people, the profit, and the planet. Uh, and profit doesn't need to be a dirty word when you're talking about sustainability because why would businesses do something that's going to protect the planet uh, if it wasn't also going to make uh, make the money, which means that the business itself is sustainable for many years to come. I, I see no conflict in that. Uh, and the third part is people. If you tell the story right in both of those cases, it engages your shareholders, it engages people who are working for you, and certainly attracts people that want to come and work for you. So making it practical, making it forward thinking, really important. We got into the concept of triple bottom line way back on episode 12, um, which was an episode we did um, with a brewery that was focused on reducing their, their solid waste. Um, I assume Muttons is, uh, is tr takes this triple bottom line approach. How long has that been part of the company's culture? It's probably for about 20 years, I should say. I mean, it wasn't even fashionable back then. I, I think maybe it was called slightly different things, and it's been called out since as the triple bottom line. But I think that's, if you're trying to get a project over the line with the board, if you don't hit those three areas, whatever you call them, whatever name you give them, you're not going to engage the board because the board is quite rightly um, looking at business reputation and business sustainability and longevity, which is another way of looking at it. So. I, it's just a, it's a good frame to have, I think, and not to forget that if you're trying to get a capital proposal, proposal through, then don't just look at one thing and make sure that people know it's not about just the environment. How should a business develop its own sustainability roadmap? I think when a business is setting a sustainability strategy, that one of the questions I, I like to ask, either we've, we've asked it uh, within Muntins or I've, I've even asked it when I've been doing uh, private consultancy, is why? Why do you want to have a strategy on sustainability? And quite often people will just stop and look at you and say, why did you ask that? Um, because I'm saying, well, you know, why? Do you want it to look good or do you want it to do something for the business? So, for example, that, that helps them say, well, you know, so it's a familiar word, I guess, a roadmap, a roadmap for the business. So is a roadmap to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and waste? That would be great. And it's easy to measure. Uh, but then you can look at the supply chain and say, well, do you know which is the biggest contributor to your carbon footprint, for example? And a lot of them won't be able to, uh, to tell you that. So that's very important to identify who you should be talking to, because you're not going to get along that road at all unless you're going to work with your whole supply chain. So as well as just looking internally at your own company, I think when you map that roadmap out, uh, it needs to drive the 
supply chain discussions right across, um, in our case, in, in malting and brewing, right from the farmer through to the brewer or even the distiller. Um, and look at what projects they're doing as well so you can engage with them. Uh, and then decide how you're going to actually describe that data. Um, you know, data can be quite boring if you're not careful. So you want to, you want to maybe attach that data to projects and uh, just uh, you know, enlighten people as to, as to where they, what their future might look like if they put this project in place. Because you can be sure that investors and customers or even your fellow competitors are going to be looking at it to find a hole in it if you're not careful. Um, and again, sustainability shouldn't be a separate activity. It's very important to uh, uh, tie it in with things like business risk management. So sustainability in terms of raw material use, in terms of the increasing price of, of electricity and gas, for example. Tie it in with that. Don't make it a separate activity. Uh, and then change that mindset. So people have been thinking for a few years of, uh, you know, let's uh, see how we can make less waste. Whereas uh, the companies that do best these days are saying, well, of course you can make less waste, but how can we make some money from the waste that we've got? And then that helps you get to that sort of circular economy, which people talk about. Uh, you may be able to make a product uh, that uh, is usable by some part of your supply chain. Um, and then finally, I, I guess if you're on that roadmap, somebody's going to say, well, you know, how do you know that you're that good? You know, you're saying you're that good. So I like to see companies uh, align with things like the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, of which there are 17, and goal number 17 says the best way you can do it is to work in partnership. Uh, and then uh, as well, if you're going to set a carbon target, make sure that it's verified by an organization such as Science-Based Targets, uh, who are very open uh, and uh, internationally recognized. Interesting that a lot of people say they're interested in a science-based target, but only about half of the people that say they're interested sign up. And I think that businesses need to move and really get involved and uh, set themselves a challenging target, but with a view to achieving it, not with a view to it being impossible and, uh, you know, putting people off. I'm guessing anyone listening to this has probably heard the term carbon footprint. What exactly is carbon footprint and why has it become one of sustainability's biggest buzzwords? So carbon footprint, I think, is, uh, is, is a sort of currency, really, for all aspects of sustainability. So even if you're trying to reduce uh, energy, you're trying to reduce water, you can calculate it back to a, a, a carbon footprint. So there's always a, a conversion between uh, every fuel that you use and the amount of uh, carbon footprint it has. Now, carbon footprint is, is that uh, impact of the gases that are generated, let's say, when you burn a fuel. Now, it isn't all carbon. It's carbon dioxide, it's methane, it's nitrous oxide, uh, it's sulfur hexafluoride, hydrofluorocarbons, perfluorocarbons. It's a whole heap of those things, but they all uh, are translated back to carbon dioxide. So if, if you emit a ton of carbon dioxide, then its global warming potential is one. So that's, you know, that's, that's easy to understand. However, if you're using fertilizers, for example, and you, emit a, uh, you, you use a ton or emit a ton of nitrous oxide, it will warm the atmosphere up when it's in the atmosphere 265 times more than a ton of carbon dioxide. So you convert it all back to carbon dioxide, but for every ton of uh, nitrous oxide that's emitted, it's 265 tons of, car of a carbon footprint. And you add those all together. Uh, and you come up with a carbon footprint. There are three scopes of carbon footprint. What are they? And in which scope or scopes can we find the lowest hanging fruit? 
Yeah, there are three scopes, and there's there's a concept as well which people talk about upstream and downstream. And I'll just come back to that in a moment. Scope one is the easiest one. Scope one is everything that you do on site. So let's say for a maltings, that's the gas that you use, or it's your own transportation. There may be other things in there, but that's the easiest way of just remembering it. So dead easy. You get an invoice. You can convert your scope one into a carbon footprint by just referencing the. Uh, there are numerous tables out there that will convert uh, uh, that into a carbon value for you. Scope two, again, quite easy. It's electricity that you purchase uh, or heat that you purchase and bring into your site. You'll get an invoice for it. So it's easy to convert. Scope three is the one where, to be honest, you're going to be pestered by every consultant going probably because they'll tell you it's so difficult to calculate. Um, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it doesn't need to be that difficult. So scope three has two aspects. The, uh, the upstream one is, for all intents and purposes to maltsters, is the barley that you, you're growing, so the raw materials that you procure. Uh, and then there's a scope three again. These are things which are not under your direct influence. A scope three that goes out of your factory. Um, now, generally, scope three in total is going to be the majority of any business's carbon footprint. And the one that probably fills them with the most dread when they're trying to calculate it, but it doesn't need to. You can work out your scope three emissions simply based on how much you spend and you just take your accounts, you choose the right model, and it will give you a very accurate scope three value. So there's a bit of free advice. So many consultants listening to this say, why has he told them that? And just to put things in perspective, you mentioned, you said that, you know, in a, in a malt house, uh, barley is going to be the biggest part of that. Um, I think, uh, didn't your paper say something like uh, over 60% of the carbon footprint uh, ends up coming from, from the farming of, of, of barley, right? Yes, you've got that exactly right. And, and you know, that was the thing that surprised us so back, back in 2006 when I, I used a, a slightly different version, but, uh, you know, a calculator. We, we really didn't know that malting barley was going to be 60% of the embedded carbon. Um, we probably guessed that uh, gas and electricity use on site was going to be in there. Um, we probably thought that transportation was going to be higher than it was, but transportation was down at 1% and the embedded carbon in, in barley growing 60%, yeah. Wow, that's something else. Let's hear about fertilizer and the impact of a new zero cost requirement in Mutton's procurement contracts. This, uh, this, uh, this uh, mapping of the carbon footprint that uh, we did was, was really interesting because when we uh, looked at barley growing, we then said, well, if it's 60%, where's that coming from? Well, we found that uh, it was coming primarily from the, uh, the manufacturer of the fertilizer. So, well, that's interesting. Uh, why is that? Talk to the fertilizer manufacturers. When I say talked, uh, it was about four years before they talked to us. They, <laughs> they, thought, they thought we were blaming them. The, the farmers initially said, well, is it, you're saying it's our fault? No, he said, no, we're not saying that. We're just saying this is so that, you know, we found an interesting fact. We need to work with you. Uh, and then of the barley component, 48% is coming from fertilizer manufacturer. Anyway, we talked to the, then talked to the fertilizer manufacturers, and they said, you know, it's when we make the nitric acid, first of all, we make nitric acid, and then we make the ammonium fertilizers. We put a lot of emissions up the, uh, up the flue, uh, up the chimney uh, when we make nitric acid, but uh, the taxation schemes that we're under for ta- uh, carbon tax mean that we're going to have to do something about that. And we're, we're putting in 
uh, clean air technology that's going to take 90% of those emissions out. And we said, that's brilliant. What's it going to do to the fertilizer? And they said, well, it's going to reduce it by about 40%. Uh, and we said, okay, so, and what price is that going to be to the farmer? And they said, oh, no, 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 we're keeping it at the same price. So we said, wow. well, just a moment, that, that's incredible. So we said, no cost to the farmer, 40% reduced carbon footprint. We'll have some of that, please. We're going to specify that our farmers must use what they call abated nitrogen fertilizer, this reduced impact fertilizer. And they said, suddenly, ah, can we do a joint press release? Because we think you might be our best friend after four years. <laughs> okay, so how else can we engage farmers to improve barley sustainability? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, there are a number of polls out which uh, show perhaps something that people don't think, that actually farmers are really keen to get involved. Um, there are some figures which say, that something like 80% of them, or even 87, I believe, is the, is the highest figure I've seen, have experienced some form of climatic impact. It might be a drought, it might be a flood the other way, it might be a yield problem. Uh, and that over 50% of them think that uh, by having a carbon strategy and understanding it better, they will have a commercial advantage because it will reduce their costs. So the challenge was then to enable farmers to understand the carbon footprint and understand what they could do to, to change it. So uh, this is why back in 2006, I developed the world's first um, calculator for malting barley, and uh, I did it in a couple of weeks. There were plenty of people uh, out there who had wanted to charge you uh, many thousands of pounds or dollars uh, for uh, you know, a, a model which wasn't an awful lot better. So there was a lot of opposition to this. They said, you can't possibly get a carbon footprint in nine questions. Well, we did. Uh, and we used easily available data that the farmer had, you know, that he understood, words that he understood. And it enabled the farmer to say, you know what, I can now see it's about my fertilizer use. It's not about fuel, which he thought it might have been. Thought he might go out and buy a new tractor. And we said, well, you can get a new tractor, but it's going to cost you a fortune. Or you can switch to a different uh, fertilizer um, and you will bring your carbon footprint for barley down from about 300 down to about 240. So he said, well, that's very interesting. So you're not asking us to spend any money. It's a great thing that uh, we don't have to use as much fertilizer. And you're going to like us because we're a lower carbon footprint producer. We said yes to, yes to all of those. They said, you know what, now we're getting it. We understand how we can engage. Also, that expensive new tractor really wouldn't have made but so much of a dent in the first place, right? No, that's right. I mean, you can, uh, you can get a tractor which is much quicker, uh, and it'll make, it'll, it'll make that 301 kilograms of uh, CO2 emitted to, to 300. Uh, and yeah. you'll spend a lot of money. You know, it's, it's quite a few hundred thousand dollars, no doubt, to get a new tractor. You might enjoy driving it, but it's not going to make your emissions any better. The case studies, I think, are really important. If you aren't showing uh, people by a case study uh, that you can really make a difference, then they maybe just wonder if you're trying to push the problem in their direction. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas.
There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. This episode is also sponsored by More Beer. Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. BSG is partnering with Leopold Brothers to bring a new line of small batch handmade malts to brewers and distillers. Leopold Brothers is a family-owned floor malting operation and distillery and 2020 James Beard Award finalist located in Denver, Colorado. Since brothers Scott and Todd Leopold first opened their doors in 1999, they have created everything from classic unfiltered lagers to a number of spirits, including a wide array of whiskey styles. Learn more about the upcoming malt line by going online to bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact BSG at 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Fermentis, the global supplier of active dry yeast. You can listen to Kevin and Marcelo talk about the shelf life and performance of active dry yeast on episode 93. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. There's a Master Brewers webinar on April 13th called To Congress or Not to Congress, a topic you'll find familiar from our 200th episode. District St. Louis meets April 15th. District New England Zooms on April 16th. The Master Brewers Brewery Packaging Technology course begins April 21st. Don't miss the Tank Cleaning Fundamentals webinar May 18th. The Great District Northwest covers all things canning for their spring meeting by Zoom on May 21st. And the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course starts August 15th. There's finally a beer industry conference you can put on your calendar that might actually take place in person. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, united we brew. back to the show. Another thing you mentioned later on the article that I think is is very interesting here is um, you talked about the use of cover crops and the potential impact there. Um, let's hear about that. Yeah, cover crops is one of those uh, subject areas which actually is global and um, when we started our first farmer group over in the UK back in 2014, 
um, a lot of farmers then were saying, oh, that's old technology, that doesn't work. And we, we found that by getting farmers together, that some of them were actually using this. So the cover crop is basically, you're going to put a, a crop down when the, the, when the barley isn't in the ground. You put a, a crop, something like clover or vetch or something like that, and it will, it will take nitrogen and put it back into the soil without you having to put fertilizer in there. And it does all sorts of things like aerates the soil, uh, etc. Now, interestingly, we, because uh, Muntins is a member of the Sustainable Agriculture Initiative platform, big organization, um, which aimed to define sustainability across the globe and actually did it. Uh, and we had a, a meeting over, actually it was in Illinois. We went to the farm farmers in Illinois and they were saying exactly the same as the farmers uh, over in the UK to say, you know, look, we're losing our soil and we need cover crops to bind that soil together. Maybe it's a little bit late in some parts, you know, that the soil's blown away many years ago. But it was the same story. The farmers are saying, you know, my grandfather, my great-grandfather used to use cover crops. We've stopped using them because we thought it was going to be difficult to try and plant seeds through a cover crop if we left it there, and they wouldn't be much good. But it's, it's really a, a great story because you can do one or two things. You can cover the ground, hence the cover crop with it, or you can use intercropping, which means that you can sow your barley, for example, and then you can put the, uh, the, the things like clover and vetch in between those crops. So even while the barley's growing, and the barley, don't forget, will grow much higher than the cover crop. So when you come to harvest it, you, you, you'll miss. You won't pick up the cover crop in the combine harvester. So it's, it's a really good way of improving the, the soil nitrogen without having to put on what can be quite expensive fertilizer. And that's a path forward to get not just to carbon neutral, but potentially negative, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's some very exciting figures which are coming out, which are showing that if you've got, uh, even let's say you've got a month, you've got a month between crops, and you might think, well, what's the point of putting anything in? It's not going to grow, surely, in a month. Well, some of these cover crops will grow in 30, 60 days. Uh, and the offset, if you like, of carbon footprint that that generates because of what it's put into the soil, and therefore you don't need to add later, is incredibly powerful. You know, it, it can get you to a point where I really believe uh, from the figures I've seen that you not only offset the carbon that's generated when you grow it, but you go even further. So the, the barley that you grow is going to be carbon negative, not even carbon zero. Wow, that's amazing. So I guess um, moving beyond the farm, is there anything you want to say about the footprint of malt? Yeah, I think once uh, you're looking at malt going out, out from the factory, um, that's when people start getting interested, like brewers and distillers, because it's interesting when they, they map it. They, uh, they, they'll be looking for where they can have a big influence. Um, so if you're looking at a, at a glass bottle, for example, you'd expect perhaps the, the, the malt contribution in a glass bottle to be different to uh, a can. So if you're looking at a 355 mil can or a 33 centiliter glass bottle, Surprisingly, the malt contribution to the carbon footprint is, is almost identical. It's 39% in, in the glass bottle, 33% in the, in the can. So that is, uh, that's on a par with some things like uh, aluminium recycling. So if you're, if you're in a can, aluminium's 41%, malt is 33%. So guess what? The brewers are really keen to uh, see how they can minimize that. Um, where it's good that... Uh, Processes like you know the molsters get in in between that is because if the brewer in his enthusiasm then it suddenly turns up on the farm or starts talking to the farmers they get nervous and think what do they want 
Whereas if they do that with the, the uh, processor involved, we found that the, uh, the discussions are much more productive because, it's again, it's this uh, linking of the supply chain together. Everybody's talking about their, uh, their, you know, their angle on, on carbon footprinting. But that's, yeah, you, you do need to, uh, to reduce that. Nigel, why should the apparent complexity never prevent a business from calculating a carbon footprint? I think it's uh, the way that you look at the data. So when I generated my first carbon footprint model back, uh, you know, all those years ago, um, a lot of people were, were trying to argue about whether, you know, my model was 1% or 2% difference to theirs. And I'm thinking, I'm really not interested because I want to reduce my carbon footprint by 30 40 50%. I don't care whether I'm starting at 61 or 62. That's irrelevant. Uh, and I think that argument, it still persists, you know, it, it, there are still people out there that want to argue detail and they will sit around arguing detail and do nothing, frankly. So when we looked at our scope one and scope two carbon footprint, we had 40% of our carbon footprint was in there and it was going to be 100% accurate because it came off the invoices. We'd got a pretty darn good carbon calculator for scope three upstream, which was 60% of our carbon emissions. So, you know, we're looking at very close to, uh, you know, 100%-ish. So that meant that the little bit that was the most difficult to calculate, we only had 3%-ish uh, left, you know, 2 to 3%, the scope 3 going from the maltings out to the brewer, uh, et cetera. And we thought, you know what, you don't have to be, you don't have to worry too much about your accuracy on that. Because let's say I was 200% out in my figures, and I'm not, but let's say I was. I'd still only be 6%. And I think that's in the noise. That's in the noise of the measurement. Uh, and that's the approach that we've taken. I mean, we, what, in fact, what we found is that once you use a, uh, one of the models for calculating scope three, <clears throat> that um, you're not that inaccurate. And uh, you'd have to probably, you know, you'd have to be miles out in your, your assumptions. Uh, but it does stop people. Uh, it does stop people getting involved because they hear that it's complex. Therefore, they don't even start trying to do the calculations. Um, and, you know, I've even done a calculation of a carbon footprint on the phone with somebody at one point in 10 minutes. And he came back months later and said to me, you know what? You were within 10% of the value that, that you quoted me on the phone. I've had these consultants around me for quite a few months, costing me thousands. Uh, and they're not an awful lot more accurate than you. I said, well, there you go. <laughs> Your paper includes a couple of case studies that demonstrate the progress Montens has made. Let's hear about those. The, the case studies, I think, are really important because in terms of my, uh, my ethos of being practically sustainable, I think if you aren't showing uh, people by a case study uh, that you can really make a difference, then they maybe just wonder if you're trying to push the problem in their direction. So the first one is an anaerobic digestion plant. So uh, Muntins uh, is a malting company, but it also uh, makes malt extract. So it, we have a brewery. We have a 4 million hectolitre brewery. Uh, and that's obviously by the time you wash your vessels out, you generate material which is high in sugar. Uh, now, at our plant, we, uh, we have uh, wastewater treatment ourselves. And to treat that high sugar material, you need to use anaerobic digestion. Anaerobic just simply means it, the sort of bugs that will eat the sugar uh, are work best when there's no oxygen, so anaerobic. Now, what they do, they, they do you a favor. When they're munching away all that sugar, which uh, it, you know, is making them grow, they also put out methane. The methane is used in an engine, and that engine generates electricity. So you're, you're on a winner already. So rather than taking your waste off-site uh, you know, in lorries and trucks and 
Uh, you never see it again, but have to pay a fortune to take it off site. Now it's saying on site, and you're making electricity. When you know fourteen percent of electricity is brilliant to make, but the other thing you get off the anaerobic digestion plant is you get a solid material um, once it's digested. Uh, it comes off. It, it sometimes it has the, the horrible name of sludge, which doesn't sound very nice. But actually, <laughs> we, could, we, <laughs> we call it a biofertilizer because that's a much better name. But it's true. You have to uh, prove that it's it's highly, uh, you know, it, it, it's clear of all microbes. So you, we pasteurize it, um, and then you dry it so it, it, it's easy to spread once you put it back onto farm. But that's the key point. Then, rather than it going to waste, that highly nutritive uh, fertilizer can then go back onto farms that are growing the malting barley that it came from in the first place. So our anaerobic digester, it only ever has cereal products in it. We don't take material from anywhere else. So it's a good story. So, you know, you, you, you can turn something that, again, there's this money from waste, isn't it? You, you don't waste something. You don't just reduce the amount of lorries going off site. Uh, you say, okay, well, what money can we make from that? That's great. Do you want to give us any numbers uh, to, to put with that so we have some scope on it? Yeah, sure. The uh, electricity that we thought we'd generate from the anaerobic digestion plant was about 10% of the site total. And pretty much from the day it went live in, in, in 2014, it's delivered 14%, I think 16% in, in the last year it's delivered of the site electricity. That's pretty good. Um, I mean, it did win a, a, an award as the best anaerobic digester uh, in the UK the year it came out. So that's always good. Um, it's you know it reduces the road miles by 140,000. So you you know you're taking trucks off the road, uh, and it's given us a, a 23% reduction in scope two emissions on the site. So pretty good, really. All right, great. Well, let's move on uh, to your other case study, which had to do with biomass heating. Talk talk to us about that. Biomass heating got a little bit of bad press. I don't know whether it is in the rest of the world, but uh, some of the big power stations uh, use biomass, and biomass really here means wood chip. Uh, but we certainly had one of the big power stations uh, in the uh, the UK, which was always in the news for bringing wood chip from Argentina to the UK. Can you imagine? That's a terrible wow. carbon footprint. Now we weren't we we didn't want to be tarred with that, but we were aware that if you take uh, you can have a boiler which is run on wood chip. We said, look, there's lots of forestry around in the UK. Is there any waste product from the first time that the tree is cut down that they have no other use for? And indeed, there was lots of it. They would basically just chip it up and leave it on the forest floor, and it would rot and give off CO2 over you know 30 years or so. So we take what was that waste material and we burn it in a biomass boiler. It emits exactly the same amount of CO2. So, you know, we're not doing anything bad. We're just doing the same for the environment that would have happened. However, we're generating extra benefit in all the heat that comes off. So therefore, the carbon footprint of wood chip is dramatically lower than uh, natural gas. Now, natural gas used to be the best fuel that you could possibly use. But uh, wood chip, sustainable wood chip, um, is 90% less in its carbon footprint. So we get the same heat out, but we've taken 90% of the carbon footprint out. So it, it, it's, a great, uh, it's a great thing to do. Uh, some companies maybe would say, you know, we can't afford the uh, capital to do that sort of project. Uh, well, that's fine. You can get an external supply company to come and build these for you. You may have to lease them a little bit of land, uh, but they're quite happy to come and uh, build this plant and then share the savings with you. So it's not impossible. 
Is there a just a, a vast supply of the wood chip, or is there um, any concern that the supply might not be there in the future? Yeah, that, that was probably the prime concern, I would say, when we were looking at that, that all the figures seemed to stack up. So we had to get a lot of reports uh, and look at uh, how much it was going to be available. And the, the reports were saying that uh, the amount of wood available was going to go up for the next 15 years. Uh, there isn't an awful lot of planting of forests going on at the moment. There's a lot of talk about it, but uh, most countries are behind in, in reforestation. Um, so even if we didn't reforest over the next 15 years, uh, and that the levels then came down over the next 15 years, we'd end up at about the same level of availability in 30 years' time as we have now. But I mean, I can't see that they won't actually get on and plant forests because a lot of people are using that as offsetting now. So yeah. uh, it's quite likely. I mean, the plant itself, you know, the, the, it's uh, it's assumed to be have a twenty year life. So if we're looking to say that we've got thirty years at least of, uh, of of wood chip available, even if we do nothing, it's a pretty safe bet. In two thousand six, UK and French maltsters collaborated on an interesting project aimed at water savings. Tell us about that. So the steeping process is, uh, you know, with the first part of the malting process, when we're, we're soaking the, the barley un, underwater, it does use quite a lot of water. Uh, and there's been a desire to say, well, you know, can we reuse that water? And, and people had taken steep water, they treated it. Um, you go back to the 1950s and, and, and 60s, that sort of time period. Uh, they would treat it and it would be perfectly good for you and I to drink. It met drinking water standards. But when they then tried to re-germinate the barley with it, it was really slow for about 72 hours. And they didn't know why. There was something in that water that wasn't dangerous to human health. But there was something in there, an inhibitor. So it took us, it, you know, it took until that the French and, and UK maltsters uh, got together uh, you know, in the early 2000s. Uh, to say, we're going to try and find out what that is. And not only are we going to find out what it is that's in there, we're going to find out how you can get rid of it. Uh, so the project was successful to find out that what the inhibitor was. It was a quinone. Um, and really, it, you, know, you know what color water looks like when it comes off. It's sort of brownish. And that brownish color actually was uh, you know, largely due to the inhibitor, though nobody ever knew it. <laughs> um, so uh, then we looked at technology to remove it. That was the next hurdle because we knew that the technology to remove it was something like reverse osmosis. But everyone said that costs so much, there's no way we can uh, possibly have reverse osmosis in. So we talked to various suppliers and, and did some actual trials. The trials happened at Munton's uh, site. We, uh, we volunteered to do the trials there on, a, on a, one of our drum maltings. It's a 30-ton uh, maltings. And uh, so the first step was to get the solids out with a thing called a membrane bioreactor, basically bubble oxygen through it and you've got a membrane that takes the liquid off uh, then you run it through an ultra filter the only reason you run it through that ultra filter is you take out any particles that potentially could block the reverse osmosis unit uh, and you really don't want to block it because it's very difficult to unblock it um, but if you put all those three technologies so membrane bioreactor ultra filter reverse osmosis together sometimes people will put a uv on the end of it but really that you don't you don't need it uh, and we found that you could actually make a perfectly acceptable malt using 80% reverse osmosis water and just 20% fresh water. Um, there was an interesting quote at the time, because having proved it, uh, there was one really big malt, uh, big brewing company uh, who I, I couldn't possibly name. It would be wrong. I <laughs> know, <laughs> oh, I definitely can't tell you. But they said, you know, there's going to be a rush to be second to have this technology in. 
And why was that? They were scared that their, you know, the marketers, marketeers were scared that if somebody said uh, that their brand had recycled water in, that it, it could affect, you know, the, the, the sales. And interesting, I was at a conference uh, in Rhode Island in, in, in the US and uh, somebody said, why are you worried about this? They said, you're at one end uh, of the, uh, the Mississippi, I'm at the other, so I'm already using your recycled water. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't take awesome. my beer. Yeah, well, it's true, though, isn't it? You know, it made better than drinking water quality standard water. So why, uh, you know, why was there that nervousness? But things have moved. Actually, if you don't use recycled water now, people are saying, why? Because they now see it as a marketing advantage, not a marketing disadvantage. Your TQ article also mentioned an impressive story coming out of Saltwater Brewery here in the U.S. I wasn't familiar with Saltwater's accomplishments. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, there's a great uh, project that uh, Saltwater have got that they, they were looking to uh, improve the uh, what, what happens if people throw waste away. So, you know, the, 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 the plastic that, that keeps the, the, the cans together. Uh, so rather than just saying, you know, it's, it's really bad of people throwing stuff away and we need to stop them throwing stuff away. They, they said, well, you know, people are going to do that anyway. We, we can try to. But uh, of the stuff that they throw away, what if we made that edible? You're thinking, edible? <laughs> are they going to try selling it? Well, no. But they, what they were worried about was if, if it gets, uh, you know, gets around the neck of the, uh, the the fish, for example, the fish can't then the fish isn't going to eat it off, uh, but it is going to be more easy, easy dissolvable in 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 water. So that, I thought that was really good, a really great idea. You know, you you can uh, you can make um, make something which will naturally biodegrade. Y you are protecting against people being a bit uh, a bit careless i suppose with their waste um but i think it's again it's very practical so you know what is the problem are we actually going to change people's uh uh you know craziness about throwing stuff away i don't think we will um it's not in, it's not unacceptable enough i think at the moment even though you see people you know around the globe picking up litter off beaches and filling goodness knows how many skips it's still not something which people are really driven by i think or not enough people so have a technology which says, look, if these crazy idiots are going to throw stuff away and, and not care about it, we'll make sure that it biodegrades. That was Nigel Davis here on the Master Brewers podcast. Check the show notes for a direct link to Nigel's article and other recent articles from last year's sustainability issue of the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly. I joined District Mid-Atlantic back when it was dominated by large breweries and I was often one of the only craft brewers in attendance. I'm so glad I joined. That membership has been incredibly impactful to my career and I've made so many lifelong friends from those meetings. If you're not already a member, I highly encourage you to join. And there's no time like the present because new members can use promo code BEER2021 or the link in the show notes to save 20% on dues. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. 